Broadcasting from the motherland in Moscow, Idaho. This is Camp Street Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Thurl. This is episode 59, Bart Ehrman versus Jesus Resurrection. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Camp Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And I am presently in Moscow, Idaho, the land of him who shall not be named, the land of federal vision, and the home of the Cross Politic Network. And so I'm glad to be up here for a couple days. And it's nice to be in a state that is, um, it's not fully open, but I guess they're in phase one of openings. We're able to go to the gym, go to coffee shops, hang out, talk, all that sort of stuff. There's still plenty of warnings of social distancing and face masks and all that sort of jazz. But it's nice to be in an area that is relatively free compared to, say, Southern California, where it was prior and you um, looked upon as a Saudi woman sans burqa in public if you are not wearing a face mask in public there. So that's uh, it's kind of nice to be in a place where you are relatively free. And also, being up here, uh, build a fellowship with some people. On Sunday, we got to go to church, participate in the Lord's Supper, and it was pretty refreshing uh, to be back in fellowship with people and to participate in the Lord's Supper, hear the preaching of the Word, go through the confession, confession of sin, go through the creeds, all that sort of jazz, all fun and good stuff. And so I'm glad to be back. And today we're going to be discussing Bart Ehrman's, the second part of Bart Ehrman's uh, critique of the resurrection. And I'm not going to lay out the historical argument for Christ's resurrection. I'm mainly, I, I guess, offering a critique of Ehrman's perspective, because if, if Bart Ehrman is the best that the unbeliever has to offer in critiquing the historical data on the resurrection of Jesus, I, I, honestly, it, and I, I guess you can just say, well, you're a Christian, and that's basically Bart Ehrman's uh, argument is you're a biased Christian. Uh, but what we're going to see is that he is just ridiculously biased and begs the question from beginning to end and defines terms in ways that he can't lose. And so it's just kind of, it's it's partially sad, it's partially funny, but in reading him, it, it's the sort of thing that actually gives me more confidence. I actually was reading a letter today from a young man who is wrestling through the faith after listening to uh, Rhett and, I want to say Stimpy, but I, that's an old cartoon show, Rhett and, Rhett and something, uh, totally blank on the name, but he listened to their deconversion story, and in their deconversion story, um, he says it kind of resonates with them, and so he's kind of wrestling through the faith, and uh, I'm not saying there aren't legit intellectual things to wrestle through in Christianity, and that there are places where, say, the historical evidence um, seems porous, and that we do not have enough evidence, and that the argument that a lack of evidence is not evidence of absence, is that right, um, sometimes may not seem sufficient. And then when you do look at, say, the evolutionary data, um, kind of try to study it firsthand, you read, say, Richard Dawkins or Jerry Coyne and uh, these sorts of men who are setting forth, uh, you know, more popularly the case for evolution. Some of the things that we often say don't feel like they hold up. And so uh, I understand those things. I think there are plenty of people who wrestle with the faith, and I feel like oftentimes we don't give people the space there or willing to acknowledge the reality of just at times, for a myriad of things, um, the faith seems distant. Uh, there seems to be a lack of evidence. Um, but anyway, all of that to say, one of the things the Rhett guy in his deconversion talked about was uh, reading Bart Ehrman. And if Bart Ehrman is one of the people that pushes you over the edge, um, there has to be other things. I, I think 
uh, I'm not going to share them. I think there are better critiques. I think I could come up with a better critique of Christianity. If I was to sit down and write a book of why Christianity is not true, I think I could uh, make a better case than what Bart Ehrman has laid out here. But Bart Ehrman, supposedly, is one of the better uh, critics of the New Testament and better critics of Christianity in a secular, uh, pseudo-neutral sort of way. So we're going to look at uh, that today. And before we get into that, uh, October 1st through the 3rd, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Conference, Doug Wilson, George Grant, and a myriad of other individuals are going to be there. There, including yours truly, and that's October 1st through the 3rd in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you become a member of the Fight Laugh Feast Network prior to that point, you will get, I don't remember if it's 50% off or $100 off of registration, but I think it's $200. So if it's 100 or 50%, I think you're coming to $100 either way. But go to our website, become a member of the Fight Laugh Feast Network by September the 1st, and you'll be able to get that discount to that. And also another thing to look at, and I'm finally up and running on it, I guess I've been the laggard, is getting our information or our podcast into the um app. We have a Fight, Laugh, Feast app that if you go to wherever you download your apps from, you can download our app and all the shows will be there and all the content. And uh, we're growing that. And part of the reason we'd love for people to be there is we know that, you know, no one can police our content if it's in our app. And so we would love for you to go there and get that. Um, I think that's my house uh, clearing sort of or my housekeeping uh, chores. But as I mentioned, uh, what I wanted to do here, and I'm going to finish up uh, Bart Ehrman this week. And next week, I think I'm going to spend two weeks on conspiracy theories just because they keep coming up. And I think there's a Christian place for conspiracy theories and how we lay those things out. Uh, it's not Alex Jones, um, nor is it accepting uh, the secular narrative. And we're going to see why Christians are often susceptible to even really bad conspiracy theories. And we'll kind of lay that out. Um, but one of the things uh, I want to do here with this Bart Ehrman resurrection thing is more show that despite Bart Ehrman's contesting the fact that Bart Ehrman is being driven by his presuppositions. And so if you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, we did a show on basically his view of historiography and what we can know. And then we did one on a couple ones on the burial. Then when last week we looked at the resurrection, the first part of the resurrection. But I want to revisit uh, some of the aspects of his presuppositions. And the first thing I uh, just kind of look at here real briefly, he has a comment regarding objectivity. And one of the things he complains that it's the evangelical and the Christian apologist that's always concerned with objectivity. And then he makes this comment. He says, university intellectuals almost never speak of objectivity, in quotes, anymore, unless they happen to live on the margins of intellectual life. And there's a grain of truth to that. And even if you're a presuppositionalist, if you are a Christian, you admit that you have biases and stuff like that. And so in and of itself, I, I don't know too many people um, nowadays that would treat history, that would treat science in quote-unquote objectivity, uh, but that's a little bit different than trying to come at something objectively and understanding that there is, in, in some sense, an objective truth. And I think much of what even Bart Ehrman seeks to lay out here is admitting, yes, I have my biases, um, but we can still kind of examine the data and have that adjust our biases and come to conclusions. And so in of itself, that's not that great. But one of the things he ends up laying out here is he says this, whether Jesus is still alive today because of his resurrection or indeed whether any such great miracle have happened in the past cannot be quote unquote known by means of historical study, but only on the basis of faith. This is not because historians are required to adopt quote unquote unbelieving presuppositions or quote secular assumptions hostile to religion, unquote. It is purely the result of the nature of historical inquiry itself. But 
why is that the nature of historical inquiry itself? Why can't uh, historical inquiry include revelation from God? Why can't historical inquiry include God's causality in history? And if you're a Christian, uh, the answer is pretty straightforward. There can be reasons to believe of God's causality in history and his actions in history and his providence. And so this is kind of a methodological naturalism, just kind of begging the question. And then going a step further, he says this, uh, the supernatural explanation regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, cannot be appealed to as a historical response because one, historians have no access to the supernatural realm. Why not? Um, why can't the supernatural realm reveal itself to us? And he, he later ends up making the comment that, you know, you have to go based on what a majority of the population believes. And so we can look at that in a second. But the idea that to say that historians have no access to the supernatural realm, again, begs a methodological naturalism, and he has not established that. Uh, then secondly, goes on to say, it requires a set of theological beliefs that are not generally held by all historians doing this kind of investigation. Well, you know, uh, an appeal to the majority doesn't set the truth of any particular issue. So the idea that a majority of Americans or a majority of historians right now don't believe in God, well, what about 150 years ago? Um, was the you know was it completely acceptable because I was with the majority of historians say 150 years ago or 400 years ago or say at the time of Jesus held that um, th- therefore it was a valid inquiry and a means of knowing history 200 years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. Um, but with the rise of the Enlightenment, that's suddenly been uh, ruled out. And so I think. Bart Ehrman is showing his presuppositions despite contending um, that they don't really come to the fore in these discussions. I think it's it's pretty plain that the presuppositions are driving um, how he's arriving there. And one of the important things, and, and even Ehrman lays this out, and if you want a further uh, development of these ideas, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is just flat out phenomenal. It's probably one of the best, probably one of my favorite books I've ever read. And just begin to end, it's gold. And even when he argues for the historicity of Christ's resurrection from the uh, bare events um, or from the, the uh, f- he would say, fact of the empty tomb and the fact of appearances, um, N.T. Wright concludes that the, the empty tomb and the resurrection are not only sufficient but also necessary conditions uh, for the rise of early Christianity. And in many ways, I feel like the, this book by Bart Ehrman especially when he's dealing with the resurrection, it's almost like he read N.T. Wright and is now doing an apologetic against it. And so this idea that the Christians are the ones doing apologetics and not the agnostic believer uh, or not the agnostic historian, I, I think wants to privilege his position and put us in a position of kind of an asymmetrical uh, burden of proof that the theist has the burden of proof on his understanding of history, but not the naturalist. And so the, the assumption is a methodological naturalism until someone comes along and, and shows otherwise. So anyway, that's kind of what he's getting at. But one of the good things about Bart Ehrman is he flat out will say things like, when Paul speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, constantly throughout the seven letters that scholars agree he actually wrote. So there's seven letters that even Bart Ehrman say, yep, this is 100% Pauline authorship. He says, the resurrection for Paul is not a spiritual matter unrelated to the body. It is precisely that the body that will be raised immortal on the last day. The Christians in Corinth, therefore, are not experiencing in the here and now the glories of the resurrected life. That is yet to come when their bodies will be raised. He goes on to say, uh, what is certain, and these are just kind of quotes about the resurrection, give you a little idea of when when the first century was speaking of a resurrection, even Bart Ehrman is admitting it's physical and bodily. He goes on to say, what is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had come back to life in the body and that this was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched, and it had a voice, and it could be heard. 
And so the, the important thing to this is Bart Ehrman is laying out, here's the definition of resurrection as Paul was using it, as the early apostles uh, were using it. And then he once asked a question, and it's the question we should all be asking, why did they come to believe this? So I don't care if you're an atheist, an agnostic, Hindu, Muslim, whatever you are, if you're just looking at history, even if you're thinking about 9-11, whether you're a truther or not a truther or whatever, you have to still ask what caused the knocking down of the planes. And the simple explanation would just be, oh, well, uh, you know, planes ran into it and in, in a brute fact sort of way. There's almost a certain level we can all agree with it. But why did those planes crash in the building? Was it pilot error? Was it intentional by, uh, by, by Islamic terrorists? Was it intentional by uh, the U.S. government? What what was the reason for those buildings being knocked down? So no matter what your view is of history, everybody has to explain, just as you know, if a Christian is going to engage a Hindu, uh, we have to explain here how, here's to an extent have how Hinduism uh, gave rise. Here's how Islam gave rise. And so we have to explain those things. And so the atheist, agnostic, the Muslim, the Christian, we all have to explain the origins of Christianity. And so Bart Ehrman ends up asking that question, uh, why did they come to think that at the very beginning of the Christian tradition that Jesus had been risen from the dead? What made them believe that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead? Something did. And I think we know what that what it was. Some of Jesus' followers had visions of him after he had been crucified. So Bart Ehrman's admitting, you know, these people had visions of Jesus after his resurrection or after he had been crucified. Um, and keep that's why I read his definitions of resurrection. What is what does Bart Ehrman mean, or what does he believe the apostles mean when they mean resurrection? It's all physical, it's all bodily. And then he goes on to uh, give this one thing. He says, some of Jesus' followers believe that he had been raised from the dead. And he says, there could be no doubt historically that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he was raised from the dead. No doubt whatsoever. So so with 100% absolute you know, historical certainty, um, as we understand historical certainty, it's not like... Um, like a logical deduction or in the same level as, say, a scientific experiment that we can duplicate tomorrow. Um, but as far as historically speaking, there's no doubt whatsoever. This is how Christianity started. If no one had thought that Jesus had been raised, he would have been lost in the midst of Jewish antiquity and would be known today only as another failed Jewish prophet. But Jesus' followers, or at least some of them, came to believe that God had done a great miracle and restored Jesus to life. This was not a mere resuscitation, a kind of near-death experience. For Jesus' disciples, Jesus was raised into an immortal body and exalted to heaven, where he currently lives and reigns with God Almighty. And then he goes up, what, what caused this? And here's the thing where Bart Ehrman, it, it, it's frustrating because you just kind of seem like he kind of in one breath sells the farm, but act like he's... Uh, holding it down, and he's simply not. And the short answer for what Bart Ehrman believes, how what gave rise to early Christianity, was that they had visions. And so he thinks there's little doubt that these people had visions. Um, but when you ask him, Bart, what's your definition of a vision? See if in any way, shape, or form, this fits your definition of what a vision is. He goes on this. He says, before we proceed, it is important to be clear about the terminology I'm using. When I say that some of the disciples almost certainly had quote-unquote visions of Jesus after his death, what do I mean? I am not using the term vision in any particular technical sense. By quote vision, I simply mean something that is quote seen, unquote, <laughs> whether it is really there or not. In other words, I am not taking a stand on the question of whether there was some kind of external reality behind what the disciples saw. Scholars who study vision speak of those that are veridical, meaning that a person sees something that is really there, and of those that are non-veridical, meaning that what a person sees is not really there. Sometimes you see a shadowy figure in your bedroom at night because someone is really there. Other times you're just, uh, you know, uh, just seeing things. And so, 
think of his definition of vision here. And so he covers both the reality of a physical presence and the non-reality of a physical presence. And so by the way he's defining the term vision, he can almost sell the farm and say, nope, there's 100%. There was a real physical person there that they had hung out with. Uh, I'm just going to call it a vision because what he wants to get at going back to his presuppositions is we can't speak of a supernatural causality in history that would have raised Jesus from the dead. So he's going to use this term vision in, in a way that enables him to, in a sense, um, assume or consume, I'm not sure what the right word is, kind of um, bring the idea of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection as really being there, appearing to people, them hanging out with him, seeing him, you know, eating food with him and everything else, and then still concluding at the end that it was just a vision because, well, lo and behold, I have these presuppositions that won't allow it to be a physical, biological resurrection by God um, in history. And that's where the, obviously, the further discussion comes in of uh, theism and God and everything else. But the important thing is this, is if you just sit down and you're reading this scholarly work, and I feel like if I was, hand, well, I guess it's it's a popular level book, but if I'm handing this in to Bart Ehrman's class and I'm discussing resurrection and I give a very clear definition that the apostles would have had, and, and the apostles would have understood what a vision was in their context and what a resurrection was, and they're very clear that they believed that it was a resurrection. So why were they using the term resurrection? And Bart never actually touches on that. He just comes up with these ideas. Oh, people hallucinate. And people can have these visions all the time. But if you study what he says there and you try to find primary sources backing his ideas of hallucinations, like no one that I'm aware of, and I don't know of any studies that would show that there are mass hallucinations. There might be mass illusions or there might be mass delusions, um, but no mass hallucination, which takes place in the mind of man. And so there is no external uh, element to that. So when you are in your room and you're quote unquote having visions, whether it's really a body in the room or there's not a body in the room, um, and if you, say, have a, a spouse, your wife or your husband is in bed with you, and you know if they're seeing the same thing as you, uh, you're going to be pretty sure that something's there. But if you think you're seeing something, they're like, I don't see anything, uh, you, you, know, you, you both go back and you assess what it is. But you would never call two of you hallucinating uh, the same thing. So if you, uh, I'm, I was reading a thing by Michael Lycona, I believe it was, and he was talking about Navy S SEALs at the end of Hell Week. Sometimes these men, due to a lack of sleep and everything else, will hallucinate, and so you'll have a group of these Navy SEALs going through the process that all hallucinate together, but they're never hallucinating the same thing. So when Bart wants this to be some component of hallucination, um, I think he's completely ripping uh, – well, he needs to get somewhere. He, he does. He knows he has to explain it as an historian, and he needs to avoid the resurrection of Jesus, and he needs to avoid the idea that there could be other causes in history. Um and one other thing to uh, brush at getting here, and he says, at the end of the day, uh, belief in Jesus' resurrection, quote-unquote, works. Think about this. At the end of the day, belief in Jesus' resurrection, quote-unquote, works, whether the visions were veridical, i.e. seen, or not, that, or illusory, there was a, a physical presence or a non-physical presence. If they were veridical, it was because Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay. If they were not veridical, uh, they are easily explained on other grounds. The disciples were bereaved and deeply grieving for their dearest loved one, who had experienced a sudden, unexpected, and particular violent death. They may have felt guilt about how they had behaved towards him, especially in the tense hours immediately before his death. It is not at all unheard of such people to have encounter, quote unquote, encounter with the lost loved one afterwards. In fact, such people are more inclined to have just such an encounter. My view is that historians can't prove it either way. And so at the end of the day, uh, belief in Jesus' resurrection, quote unquote, works. And uh, then he goes on to basically 
want to take it back by saying we don't, you know, uh, whether it's veridical or non-veridical, uh, the historian can't say. And so that, I would say, is much more him operating from his philosophy and his presuppositions, and they are his secular, non-believing presuppositions despite his contention earlier. So if we take... Bart Ehrman's whole philosophy, his worldview from begin to end, I don't think he's actually doing good history at this point because he's giving us the resurrection that he wants to take back the resurrection, not because the historical evidence shows that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, but because he has a philosophy that says that Jesus could not have been risen from the dead. And I just think that's uh, very important in our understanding as we listen to Bart and you have students go off to college who listen to things from Bart Ehrman and stuff like that. And so thinking about that rent and stimpy guy or whatever his name is uh, with their deconversion story, having read Bart Ehrman and you read this stuff. And if that's persuaded him, um, it's it's not because he was really seeking truth and critically analyzing uh, the works of this man. So uh, we're done with that. Like I said, I th- we're going to get into conspiracy theories the next two weeks. Um, it's not straight up uh, evangelistic oriented, um, but conspiracy theories are the rage right now. And I think there's a biblical reason to believe some of them and a biblical reason to reject some of them. And we're going to look at that probably over the next two weeks. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Campus Reach Bear podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com. You can find me on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, Facebook, Keith Thurl, and on the Instagram, uh, Campus Preacher is where you can find me and check us out on Fight Left Feast Network. Thank you. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land.